Um, hi, Spark. Oh, that was so great. Um, so I'm Alexa. I don't know. I haven't met a lot of you. I've been going here. I think we were talking in the car maybe a little under a year, maybe less than that. I'm not totally sure. Um, so a little preface. There are a lot more of you than I thought there would be on Super Bowl Sunday. So good thing, bad thing. I don't really know. Um, second preface. Kevin warned me that if I go over my seven-minute time limit, I may be left behind in the rapture or face extra purgatory time. So we're going to try to keep this brief. <laughs> but he admits it happened. Um, and kind of the third preface, um, when Kevin asked about the Why Jesus series, I said, what if I'm not fully sold on Jesus at the moment? And he was like, bring it on. So I said, okay, here we go. Um, so a little bit of background. Uh, I was raised atheist. My parents would probably agree, disagree with that statement. They think we're like agnostic and super open. But I had one too many conversations with my dad about religion equaling mind control. So I have a pretty strong argument that I was raised atheist. I um, actually made it to high school and my knowledge level about Jesus was that he was somehow related to God, but also God. So I was thinking like possibly identical twin something was going on there. Um, there was a virgin involved across and also Christmas and presents. So like I was a fan, but also not, you know, kind of the usual for an atheist. Um, and my sophomore year, we were required to take a theology class. So we started first semester with Old Testament, and no offense to you Old Testament lovers out there in the room, but I was hearing about this old bearded white man who was angry and powerful and killing a bunch of people, and I thought, what's new? Like, this is pretty much like where we are. Um, so I was not super impressed. I learned more since then. I do like it better now. Um, and my second semester, sophomore year, I got into New Testament. And you know what I knew about Jesus, so um, not a lot. And we watched this video, and I, I would tell you about it or show you, but it's actually really long. I watched it again as I was kind of going through this. And it's this beautiful video, and it shows this girl really struggling through life. She starts out with a lot of joy, um, but the world just keeps knocking her down. And kind of the pinnacle of this video, Jesus throws himself in between this girl and the world and takes all of the hurt and takes all of the suffering. And the girl gets up and they dance together. And I mean, this is the end of the day, sophomore year. Most people are kind of sleeping on their desks because it's dark and we're watching a video. And I'm sobbing, just sitting in the middle of class, just crying. I'm like, this this is the love, like, this is what I believe in. And I got so excited. I thought, all oh, you Christians out there, that's, that's a cool thing that people are doing. Um, so long story short, started talking to some of my friends and ended up at a Korean Baptist church, the only white person at this Korean Baptist church. Um, and I learned really quickly, I'm a good rule follower. So I very quickly, well, not quickly, I had to earn some respect, but eventually kind of made my way up in this church, I was going to 5 a.m. Saturday services. I did, I memorized all my Bible verses. Um, I was straight. I never really wanted to touch drugs or alcohol or boys. So I was in a really good spot to be kind of at the top. Um, and I was super excited to go into college with this kind of countercultural huzzah for Jesus attitude. And I did. I was really successful. I found a community on my college campus and I was doing the not going to frat parties and having movie nights and reading my Bible. Um, and it was all going really well until I went abroad. 
and which sounds so cliche, it's, I hate it, but <laughs> I went abroad and I was kind of away from this community that had held me into this mold and that had really provided that support. And I thought, okay, like who, I, who am I, what do I, what do I believe? And I had some really hostile to religion people in my household. Um, I had a young woman in my trip say to me, you can't believe that I'm a human and be Christian. And I thought, why? And she said, what the Bible says about biracial children. You don't think that I'm a human. And I had never even heard of that claim. And I looked it up and I was kind of horrified and I argued with her. I said, no, 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 no. You, that's not what Christianity is about. That's not what the Bible is about. It's all about love and justice and forgiveness. And I fought really, really hard for five months while I was in South Africa to show people, no, like Christianity is this really beautiful thing. It's all about love, unconditional love, justice, all of these beautiful things. Um, and I came back, and it, it wasn't that. And I think I was really surprised. I came back to my home church. I came back to my kind of Christian club on campus, and I started asking questions about some maybe more hypocritical claims about love and, and some traditions that I had held for a really long time. And, and the response that I got was, oh, no, the world is getting to you. I was like, no, but, but what about this? What about that? And they said, oh, I'll pray for you. I'll pray that God gets rid of those doubts in you. And, and I, I found myself feeling really alone and feeling really confused um, that this process I was going on that felt like so much joy and discovery and love and authentic, pure, this, this on-fire-for-justice um, kind of love um, was not biblical enough, and that was really confusing for me. Um, so I think I started questioning, if that's the kind of group that Jesus makes, I don't know if I want to have anything to do with that, um, which kind of brings us to where I started with Spark, that I thought, okay, well, it's not really working for me, and this seemed like a pretty cool group of humans doing something a little bit different. Um, and it made me grapple with the fact that that Jesus that I fell in love with six years ago, sophomore year theology, that, that idea I still believe in, that I really, I love love. And, and not just any kind of love, the love that drives out these unjust systems and unequal power dynamics. And, and I do believe in that. And, and I think I'm here today, and my why Jesus and why I still consider myself Christian is I found that I was following a lot of people who looked a lot like modern Jesus. <laughs> I've had some conversations with people about what it really means to live like Jesus, and it's, it's this radical love that dismantles our current structures, that goes against the social norms. The people that I follow, I think, are you know the Greg Boyles and the Desmond Tutus and the Greta Thunbergs who are so deeply in love with creation that they will go outside of borders and go outside of what we typically expect of people. And, and that's really what Jesus did. So I think at this moment in my life, there's, there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of growth and there's a lot of learning. But from my experience and from what I've seen so far, when we're doing this whole love thing right, we start to look a lot more like that guy who had dinner with the outcasts and who changed the way that we view power 
and challenged all of the systems that were in place. So I have a lot left to learn and a lot more questions to ask and a lot more people that I would love to hear your perspectives and your experiences. But that's my why Jesus. Thanks so much again, Alexa. That was great. And thank you all for joining us today, all the more, considering that Super Bowl Live is live right now. And uh, I understand if uh, from time to time while I talk, you need to check your phone to know the score. Um, This is a drill, actually, that Sparkers will be very familiar with. Anybody who's lived in the Bay Area for the last decade or so is very comfortable and familiar with our major sports teams appearing in the finals. It's happened like 11 times in the last 11 years or so. So this is, you know, we we know how to do this. We'll be just fine. The only thing that I request is that inevitably, as you look at your phone to check the score, hide your emotions because I will be trying to discern the score based on your reaction. If you cry, I'll cry. And then that's it. Okay. So just, uh, you know, try, try to maintain composure about it. And, Uh, And I will do the same. So in our series for Why Jesus, the topic that I actually wanted to talk about tonight is uh, it's very complicated. It has a long history of controversy. Um, It's one that uh, often doesn't even neatly fall along political or cultural divides. It's something that really uh, cuts at a lot of what it means to be human. And that is Jesus's attitude towards violence. And in particular, the case that I'm going to make is Jesus's radical attitude of nonviolence in response to the violence that we experience. And in asking the question, why Jesus, um, or the way that I'm taking it to be that uh, what makes Jesus special, what makes Jesus unique, what makes Jesus worth following, I would say that Jesus's attitude towards violence is very much one of those things that might even epitomize how Jesus can be so different from everybody around him, uh, no matter what sections of life they come from. Uh, I also understand that because this is a, a huge, weighty, gnarly topic that, I, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I'm going to resolve this debate for you today um, or that, uh, you know, I will, um, you know, get you all the way to, to exactly where you need to be on the issues so that, uh, so that you end up comfortable. Um, Jesus often, when he talked about uh, violence and, and the way we interact with violence, left everybody who listened extremely uncomfortable. So you can join me in the discomfort that, that I experience whenever I'm confronted with what Jesus says. But nevertheless, what I have to share are some of my own reflections, some reflections on what I think is the, the voice of, the, of Scripture on this issue and Jesus' voice, and um, voices ranging from uh, Jesus' own time throughout history to several modern voices today that, that will um, speak to, I think, uh, this very issue. And so, we're, you know, we'll have, we'll have many of those perspectives reflected. This topic, um, often, even, uh, despite how complicated it is, perhaps you, you've been involved in discussions about Jesus's attitude towards violence, and it might follow um, a very uh, traditional path. Several things often come up predictably in these discussions. In fact, uh, literally within the last few days, uh, somebody uh, very close to me and I were having a discussion about this very issue completely independent of this lesson. They, they didn't know that 
this is what I would be talking about, but in that discussion, we covered uh, all of the main objections. So when I shared my perspective that I thought that Jesus calls his followers to radical nonviolence in response to violence, you get uh, a common set of objections. Um, And all three of the objections I'm about to bring up came up in the like five minutes that we talked about it. Number one is, hey, speaking of the angry old uh, white guy in a beard, is the idea of taking this this image of God as violent in the Old Testament and saying, well, doesn't that give us some kind of direction on how God feels towards violence? And then uh, another um, another point that all, almost always comes up in these discussions is, so are you saying that if somebody with a gun broke into your house and threatened to kill your family members, you would not uh, do anything and let them kill you. This is a very common uh, um, line that comes up. And then, of course, there is the uh, reductio ad Hitlerum that uh, you know makes uh, debates next level, where they said, so are you saying that if uh, you lived during Nazi Germany, you would have just let the Nazis do what they wanted. So, right, like this this uh, encompasses the the range of uh, of responses that, that we often see. And I will address these, all of these things that I just brought up in various ways, but I want really to let Jesus's own voice speak first to set the table for how to approach this. And then we will, will layer on how to think about these, these other scenarios and other voices that have weighed in on the issue uh, over the millennia. Um, so first, before we can even get to Jesus's own words on the subject, of which he has many, it's helpful to have a context of the world that Jesus entered when he came to earth. So in Jesus's own context, when you were someone like him who claimed to be the Messiah and accepted the title King of the Jews, um, when you were doing things like that, there was a mold that preceded Jesus. Like there, there was a way of people, lots of people in Jesus' own time claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be King of the Jews, and claimed to, to be what Israel was longing for in its hope to be relieved from the oppression that it was facing in the Roman Empire. So just to give you a, a picture of the world that Jesus would have entered— uh, one example is Judas Maccabeus. So this was a leader in Israel within uh, a couple centuries before Jesus was born. And you might know him to the extent that he was a leader who ultimately um, led a, uh, a, a brief um, freedom that, that Israel experienced from oppression um, that is uh, the culmination of which is celebrated in the holiday Hanukkah. In the case of Judas Maccabeus, he, he was able to lead a group of people um, to have this, this revolt, and he ultimately died in battle for a brief period of time. Some Jews felt like they had experienced the freedom that they had been longing for. But really, by the time you get to Jesus's day, despite the Maccabean victory that had happened just a century and a half ago, many people, especially in Jesus's circle, still felt that they had not fully been relieved from Roman oppression, and that even though they did have a measure of freedom in their lives, they still were somehow prisoners in their own home. And they put on this, uh, whoever claimed to be the Messiah, their hopes that they would experience true lasting freedom. 
Herod the Great is another person you may have heard of. Uh, This person shows up uh, in the Bible. Outside of the Bible, we have uh, ample historical records that show that he was a very violent king uh, over the region and um, killed many of even his own family members in order to hold power. The way the Gospels portray it, the Gospel of Matthew portrays King Herod as somebody who orders a genocide of all of the baby boys that fit Jesus's description when Jesus is is born to make sure that nobody threatens um, his supremacy as king of the Jews. There's also uh, a couple of revolts that are mentioned in the New Testament itself. So the book of Acts uh, mentions um, Theudas and Judas the Galilee, Judas of Galilee. And these are just examples that are brought up in the narrative flow of the book of Acts as other people who were claiming to be the Messiah. And in the text of Acts, the way that it's described is that these are examples of people who claimed to be something, got a bunch of followers, led a revolt, ultimately died. The movement dissipated shortly after they died. And the, the, uh, in the way the narrative goes and acts, um, the, the question is presented, if Jesus is the real deal, then, uh, then you know, we'll deal with that then. But if he's not the real deal, then you know, now that he's dead, let's just see what happens to his followers. Maybe the, if he's not the real deal, the movement will dissipate all by itself. The Gospel of Matthew also mentions several false messiahs. So this is like this is a, a, a complex of people who are hoping to fit that role so that they can redeem Israel. There's also, even after Jesus's time, there is Simon Bar-Giora, who was the, uh, a, a leader, a messianic contender during, the, um, during uh, around the middle of the first century. So uh, he led a revolt that ultimately culminated in the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, which is an event that weighs heavily in the background of much of the New Testament letters. And then there's Simon Bar Kokhba, who was a, a messianic contender who lived uh, in the, around the middle of the second century after Jesus, who also led a revolt. And, uh, and it looked like they actually were successfully um, removed Roman occupation from their land for a little bit. That peace lasted three years, and then their hopes came uh, crushing down, uh, crashing down, and um, you know, Israel again found itself under Roman oppression. That is the context that Jesus finds himself in. And when Jesus begins his ministry, claiming to be the anointed one of Israel, doing all the things that God promised Israel that God would do, Jesus does not look like any of these people at all. In fact, Jesus comes in his, in his ministry speaking good news. That is his weapon that he uses. It is famously uh, some of his uh, most profound teachings on this very subject of power and violence come from what we call the Sermon on the Mount. So the way the Gospel of Matthew is structured is it tends to chunk a lot of Jesus's teachings like all into one. So it takes sayings that were probably from different parts of his life and, and puts it together. And the way that the Gospel of Matthew frames the Sermon on the Mount is basically to think of it as the good news that Jesus preached. So the content of the good news that Jesus preached said things like this. 
you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. So this is quoting uh, Jesus's own scriptures, the Old Testament. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If, un- if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Can you imagine somebody claiming to be the Messiah of Israel saying that in contrast to all of the different people that we just met? And yet, this is consistently how he spoke. In fact, there are other times when uh, the Gospels have various people reacting to like the sum total or effect of Jesus's teachings. And there's one response in the Gospel of John from temple guards, no less, people who enforce, uh, enforce security with their power, who I think capture uh, how many people in Jesus Jesus's time felt and how even we might feel today, we have never heard anyone speak like this. That, that is why Jesus, that is unique. And I think that that is as true today as it was back then. Who talks like that, especially if they are claiming to be someone so great and so big? Now, what's all the more interesting to me is that it looks like Jesus's followers picked up on exactly this message that is very difficult to preach and actually live out in life. So the Apostle Paul, somebody who became a follower of Jesus decades after Jesus himself was on earth, so somebody who did not have any personal contact with Jesus during Jesus's ministry, somehow still has gotten on uh, on the same page as Jesus there on message. So the Apostle Paul, in actually trying to alleviate racial tension in the church in Rome, trying to to um, cultivate Jewish and Gentile Christian unity within the church, talks to them about laying your, laying your own life down, your own interests and your own desires down for the sake of people who are not like you. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Later, he says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is uncanny how similar what Paul is saying is to what Jesus himself said. Scholars will reflect on this by saying, given how similar these, uh, these texts are, but the fact that Paul never really met Jesus uh, in, in the first place during Jesus' own ministry, this would have been a pervasive message within the early church that is being faithfully carried on from Jesus himself. Paul, in another letter to the church in Corinth this time, in helping them understand the sadness that comes with living, following Jesus in a way of arrogance and trying to one-up somebody else and trying to increase your own standing, reminds this church, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The early church, including Paul, seemed to have gotten the message that the weapons 
that they fight with are words and actions of love, and the battleground is one's mind. That is how the early church was carrying on Jesus' message. Um, in, the, in the end of the, what we call the New Testament canon, the last book of Revelation, has many images that often also enter the, the discussion uh, when you talk about Jesus' nonviolent uh, approach. And, and that's because the book of Revelation seems to have some images of Jesus returning one day and returning violently. So the way that these images are described, these apocalyptic images in Revelation, it often, uh, are, you know, the, the, the way it comes up in the discussion is that Jesus will return riding on a horse with a sword, and he will have blood on his robes. And with that image, you know, people get the idea, well, when Jesus comes back, he is, uh, he's, you know, he's going to play to win. He may have come to earth the first time nonviolently, but the second time he's going to make sure he finishes the job. There's, uh, and this is often represented in artwork. That's very easy to find. Like this would be the, uh, in Revelation 19, many people draw the image this way. There's a huge problem with that, uh, construing the image that way. And it's not that hard to even notice. If you read Revelation 19 itself, when Jesus shows up on this horse prepared for battle, the sword he has is not in his hand. It's coming out of his mouth. They are words that he speaks. And it says that's how he destroys the nations. And the blood that he has on his robes. He has that blood on his robes before the battle begins. In Revelation 19, that image strongly implies the blood is Jesus's own blood that he shed for the sake of his enemies. And that is how victory will happen. And Revelation then calls followers of Jesus to live out their lives the same way and fight the same way that he fought. Given the consistency, the breadth of uh, New Testament writings on this subject, we've covered just a few. It is remarkable all the more like how controversial this topic would have been even in that day and how the New Testament, in my view, seems to speak on one voice on this subject. It could appropriately be summarized with Jesus, all of Jesus' teachings is this, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who persecute you. And then as Jesus said, on the cross— praying to God about his enemies who had crucified him. Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That is, in my view, Jesus's ethic towards nonviolence. Now, let's talk about some of those objections that might come up to round out this perspective. And again, these are things that Christians have debated for centuries. I'm not, gonna, not anticipating that I'll be able to open and shut this case for you, but we should talk about this a little bit. So first of all, one perspective that often comes up as a huge counter to what I'm saying now is what's called just war theory. You might have heard of it. <coughs> My response to that perspective is often, is there ever really just war? Is that ever the case that, uh, that you, you can have this? And the, the idea here is that, uh, you know, just war has, it's a, it's a framework that followers of Jesus throughout centuries have had um, towards, you know, whether uh, groups of people or nations should engage in war or not, whether it's okay for Christians to participate in war or not. This is a, it's a, a perspective that has taken different shapes and forms uh, over the centuries. And uh, ultimately, this, this perspective speaks to the limits on uh, why 
you can go to war, like what is a just reason to go to war, how you can treat the people that you've defeated, how a war should never be something that's celebrated, how you should only use proportional response, the eye for an eye idea. The, then there is a lot to be, um, uh, a, lot, uh, a lot to be praised about this approach in the sense that, I mean, there, most of the time nations go to war, or maybe one could argue every single time, uh, nobody really is able to live up to those kinds of principles. So to the extent that anything gets people to uh, treat their enemies more compassionately than they do, I think that's good. The problem, though, is I think that this entire perspective— for me, on my read, is not one that's really found in the Bible. That's not where our early church fathers who came up with this perspective got it from. You're certainly not going to find this kind of perspective laid out with Jesus. But often the argument goes that this, this uh, elements of this perspective can be found in the Old Testament when Israelites did wage war on their enemies uh, in different times and different places. That comparison to say that uh, just war has its roots in the Old Testament style of warfare, I think is, is very problematic for several reasons. One is that the wars that Israel is waging in the Old Testament, they're not just wars. They're holy wars. Those are fundamentally different ways of fighting. Holy warfare in the context of ancient Israel and its neighbors often involved um, killing all the humans and animals or living things within a space. And that is not how just war theory works out. I would not go to the Old Testament for rules on how, like the United States, for example, should conduct its battles today. I think that's a very problematic conflation. Um, the, I think on top of that, this, this perspective often goes like the, this idea that just war theory is good and that maybe the, like the Old Testament attitude towards war is not so bad or can be normative in some ways. The, the implicit vibe that I get is uh, because nobody really that you talk to would say like, yes, it's justifiable to engage in holy warfare the way that Israel did. But they would, they would often say like, well, there's some core thing that's redeemable there. And then Jesus came along and he softened uh, the approach of warfare. So it's basically like Old Testament warfare, but nicer. Like that's, that's the idea. And uh, I would say that, you know, Jesus didn't take the Old Testament narrative on violence and soften it. He took it and he subverted it. He took it and he negated it. He took it and he destroyed it and welcomed his followers to do the same. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, but I tell you. This is also a topic that we've covered here at Spark in many sermons in, in many different ways, particularly in our series on the Torah, like in the book of Deuteronomy. So, you know, we can uh, continue that dialogue in other places, but I wanted to raise this, you know, these, these issues just now for, for you to think about. The second part that often comes up, and this uh, harkens back to the, the um, scenario, the two scenarios that often show up is what would you do if somebody broke into your house with a gun? And uh, do you mean you wouldn't stop Hitler if you could, right? So these, the idea, the, the implication here in that discussion is to actually to, to think of pacifism as pacifism. Right? The idea is that, uh, you know, uh, 
taking Jesus literally or taking Jesus seriously uh, in the Sermon on the Mount makes it feel like uh, what you're saying is when you are confronted with evil, do nothing. So first of all, there there are a couple things that I want to say about that. The first thing is, is when we read that phrase in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus used that said, do not resist the evildoer. So the word resist there in its context is not do nothing. It is don't go low. Don't become like your enemies. That's what it's, that's what it's asking for, what, what it's asking of its followers. And that's borne out in, you know, in the several examples that Jesus gave of different things that you can do in response to violence. In none of the examples he gave was doing nothing in option, right? These are all active ways to, uh, to respond. It's, it's a tragic failure of our imagination that we take the Sermon on the Mount so literally and leave it there. Jesus isn't asking you to do nothing. He's asking us. All of those examples that Jesus gave were about creative ways to disrupt and end cycles of violence, to expose violence and empty it of its power in the process. If all you do is take Jesus's commands literally say, okay, someone hits me on the face, I let him do it again. Got it. Then you have entirely missed the point of what Jesus is saying. There is uh, a scholar, theologian, and pastor who I think has actually um, addressed this, this scenario of like, what do you do when somebody breaks into your house very well? And I want to share his voice on this perspective. Rather than starting from this extreme case of someone breaking into my house and threatening my uh, loved ones, in which case it's obvious I should resort to violence. What if I, starting today, what if we, starting today, uh, just started practicing what Jesus told us to do? I encourage people every day, pick out the person you love the least and pray for them. And if they're in your vicinity, ask, how can you serve them? Let's practice loving enemies uh, day in and day out. And then maybe we'll find, I think we will find, uh, at least some will find, that after 5 or 10 or 15 years of practicing practicing enemy love, your character begins to change. And see, if someone breaks into your house and you genuinely love them, you don't automatically go for the most extreme uh, way of, of, of protecting your family. You want to protect them as well. If my son got deranged and came in and was going to, you know, was threatening my other two kids, I wouldn't immediately go for a gun, not that I have a gun, but I wouldn't, you know, just try to snuff them out. We do that because we don't value those people. That is nothing but an intruder. It's not a human being. And therefore, we feel, okay, taking their life, feel justified, feel immoral if we don't. Uh, But if we really love them, well, that changes. It reframes everything. And um, now your brain is working for creative ways to resolve this conflict short of killing anybody. Another aspect of this discussion that I think that um, people who are very quick to dismiss the nonviolent thrust of Jesus' teachings, another perspective that I think they fail to take serious stock of is just how much violence is cyclical, like how much violence can beget violence. There is, uh, there is a thread of, of voices of, of ranging from theologians, political activists, um, people of variety, uh, variety of faiths who have 
seriously grappled with this perspective and have chosen nonviolent responses to some of the most oppressive experiences that humans can go through even in the 20th and 21st century. So I want to highlight a few of those voices now, all on the theme of the, you know, the, the tragedy that is violence begetting violence. So you will recognize uh, many of these. You might not recognize some of them. So, but of course, of course, we have to start with uh, a modern voice, Gandhi, right? This is probably a very famous quote that, that uh, many of you have heard attributed to Gandhi. An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. That seems consistent with Jesus' own teaching to say that you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye. But there is a better way, one that more fully represents what God is hoping for. There's just one problem, as I was trying to source this quote, which happened the last time I quoted Gandhi as well. It looks like there is no hard evidence that Gandhi actually was the one to say that. There's a historian of Gandhi who, like, that's the earliest source that we have of somebody putting in writing. And that historian, in context, was saying that they were describing the essence of Gandhi's teachings as this. So, you know, you know, maybe he said it, maybe he didn't, he probably didn't, but that seems like true to what he would say, right? It's still a very meaningful quote, even though maybe Gandhi didn't say it, maybe. Actually, I don't know, it's less compelling. If you can't, if you can't put Gandhi on it, that's just not as cool. That's, that's uh, unfortunate. Um, but the, the gist of it, the, the truth of it, I think, uh, perseveres. Uh, another famous voice, one who actually um, built on both the Jesus tradition and Gandhi's influence on um, nonviolent ways to hold governments accountable. Uh, Martin Luther King, in one of his works, has said, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may uh, murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. For Martin Luther King, this perspective for him came from Jesus. That's, that's who he, that's who breathed into his life to, to help him fight the injustices in America the way that he did. There is another voice from the 21st century that I think captures this very well. Um, that is uh, Malala Yousafzai, who um, became, uh, a few years ago, became the youngest winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. She is a young Pakistani woman who has devoted her life to uh, improving the outcomes for women uh, in, in Pakistan and uh, the educational outcomes for, for young people. And here is uh, how she reflects on, in an interview with John Stewart on The Daily Show, uh, how she reflects on her experiences dealing with the Taliban when she was in Pakistan. When uh, in 2012, um, we were, I was with my father and someone came and she told us that, have you seen on uh, Google that if you search your name and uh, the Taliban have threatened you? And I just could not believe it. I said, no, it's not true. And even after the threat, when we saw it, I was not worried about myself that much. I was worried about my father because we thought that the Taliban are not that much cruel that they would kill a child because I was 14 at that time. 
But then later on, I, I used to, like, started, I, I started thinking about that, and I used to think, think that the Talib would come, and he would just kill me. But then I said, if he comes, what would you do, Malala? Um, then I would reply myself that, Malala, just take a shoe and hit him. But then I said, <laughs> <laughs> but then I said, if you hit a Talib with your shoe, then there would be no difference between you and that Talib. You must not treat others Aye. that much with cruelty and that much harshly. You must fight others, but through peace and through dialogue and through education. Then I said, I'll tell him how important education is and that I even want education for your children as well. And I'll tell him, that's what I want to tell you. Now do what you want. I know your father is, is backstage, and he's very proud of you, but would he be mad if I adopted you? <laughs> I let it play through to, for that ending. I thought that was, that was worth it. Um, for all of these people, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Malala Yousafzai, and all of the people along with them in solidarity throughout time, this idea of fighting oppressive powers through nonviolence is not an academic exercise. This is literally their lives. These are, this is what they do. I think that often an objection to, to Jesus' nonviolent ethic comes from this perspective that it just seems like it is not practical. Like you cannot actually li live out your life that way. And all of the voices that I've uh, highlighted show that, no, that is literally how you will win. And for Malala, too, I don't know if, uh, if many of you know this, but she, she was shot in the face by, um, by her enemies. And um, it has not stopped her at all from, from uh, her, her approach towards um, fighting the, the injustices that, that she um, encounters in her life. There's a, another perspective from the other side that I think is, is worth highlighting. So there's a, one of the most famous directors in America in modern history, Quentin Tarantino, who's often known for the most violent of violent movies that you can come up with. I think that if, if you are one who, you know, who can stomach his movies, there is often, in many of his movies, a, a subtext that helps you realize that, like, oh, even Quentin Tarantino, or even through the stories that he's telling, understands that when you, when characters, when his characters engage or enter violent worlds, that the, in uh, receiving violence in return or escalating violence is par for the course. Sometimes it's actually a very, it's a, a profound and halting message that comes from some of his movies. So there's a quote, for example, uh, from the movie Kill Bill, where the, the main protagonist is setting, on, uh, setting off on a journey to, um, to seek revenge on everybody who had left her for dead. And the person who makes her her sword that she's going to use on the journey says, warns her, revenge is never a straight line. It's a forest. And like a forest, it's easy to lose your way, to get lost, to forget where you came in. 
I think there's, there's acknowledgement from, you know, whether you, whether you uh, fight against violent stories or dive right into violent stories, that there is an inherent danger that comes with that world. Um, a, a, there's a, da- a danger that is avoidable. Uh, many of you, too, might have noticed this pattern um, of escalation in the news lately. So <clears throat> is this very, it's this tragic story where um, very recently... Iran shot down uh, a passenger uh, aircraft, um, and everybody on that plane died. Now, at first, they they lied about it, and they said that I think it was the the, the story was there was a malfunction on the aircraft, um, but then it was revealed that they shot it down. But the reality is is that Iran, prior to that event, had had the United States government assassinate one of their top generals. When that happens to you, is it not surprising that you are primed to think there are enemies everywhere? There were Iranian civilians on that plane. The government of Iran killed their own people thinking that it was was some kind of enemy threat. That is what happens. That is the collateral damage of violence when it gets escalated. There is, uh, uh, some of you may recognize this bumper sticker that Pastor Kevin actually showcased, like at the very beginning of this series as an intro to the kinds of things that we would be talking about. Um, and I am uh, faithfully carrying on that context in that, that Jesus is, in everything he says and does, he goes against so many of our natural cultural impulses. So this, this is the one that, that came up. And I remember when Pastor Kevin put it on the screen, I remember thinking what, that, that statement is particularly ironic because when Jesus was, uh, when, when he was arrested, he was, or his, his crew, was actually strapped. They actually had the modern equivalent, or the, the ancient equivalent of a gun at the time that they, uh, the Roman soldiers came to arrest him. Uh, one of his disciples had a sword. And when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, they pulled out that sword and they struck one of the soldiers, cutting off their ear. And Jesus did not reply saying, great, anyone else have swords? He did not reply saying, um, uh, uh, put your sword away because we're outnumbered here. He didn't just say, put your sword away because this is part of a bigger story that's unfolding before your eyes. He could have left it at that, but he did not say, put, he did not say, put your sword back in its place just for those reasons. He said, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. That is what he told his disciples when they took action, when they pulled out their, their weapon to try to rescue Jesus. The last thing that I want to talk about is to take this on a level, moving away from wars and these like, dramatic national contexts. Because often when you talk about this, this, uh, these discussions about Jesus' attitude towards nonviolence, it's very easy to abstract it to politics and national re- regimes and things like that. But Jesus, in, in his own context, was speaking to the many forms of human experience, not just interactions with the government, but also your interpersonal interactions, your interactions with, with 
people you come across day to day. And Jesus himself in his life epitomized this attitude of self-sacrificial love for the people who you love and the people who you don't love, for your enemies, for your neighbor, and to take an expansive view of who your neighbor is. And we often lean towards just these dramatic statements of what self-sacrificial love looks like, right? We often say, like, we think that we're following the Jesus tradition when we say things like, I take a bullet for you, right? Again, bullets are like this very common thing that comes up in all of these discussions about nonviolence, because of course, so many of us are experiencing bullets so much here in upper middle class suburban Silicon Valley, right? The reality is, is that bullets aren't the only way we all do damage to each other. And it's no surprise that Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount ties violence very closely. He ties murder very closely to hatred. And I think there's value in moving away from some of these more dramatic gestures of, you know, the kind of self-sacrificial love you would have to speak more practically and to get to the nitty-gritty of what it's like actually living out the Sermon on the Mount. An example of this very dramatic uh, gesture of sacrificial love, which will include bullets, we'll listen to the lyrics, comes from a song from Bruno Mars a few years ago. I love Bruno Mars. I love this song. It's great. But I want you, I want you to, to pay attention to the lyrics and see the case that he's making for the kind of love that he has. so romantic. There is, um, there's a, like, so, and again, I, t- I said, I loved this song, but there was something about it, like, even when I first heard it, that I couldn't quite pinpoint, like, through this lens of, like, what it looks like to actually love sacrificially, that, like, that something was slightly off about the song. And, of course, parodists are great at, at helping us understand those things that are slightly off that we don't realize. So just a little bit after this song came out, Key of Awesome uh, is a, a parody group, did this parody that I think captures it well. That, that hits close to home for many of you, doesn't it? That is actually what it's like living out 
self-sacrificial love day to day. And when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, he has this in mind as well. This is what it means to, to live it out. There is a, this last perspective to close that, uh, that I want to share um, that it has to do with um, <clears throat> like related to this attitude of, you know, being okay with dramatic gestures, but when it comes to like living your day-to-day life, finding it hard or not having the capacity to, to actually sacrifice yourself for the sake of others. I think that like, so I, I completely understand for many of you, there are, there can be toxic people in your life, people who have done you much harm, that you have uh, extended a great deal of grace to and it has never been returned. It has been damaging to you. And for that reason, you, you, can't, you can't be around them. That, that is the case for a lot of people. And I get that. And it's often represented by like, this, this, um, this feeling of immediately like that you, you can't. You just can't. You have no capacity to be there for this person who needs it. And, and, I, and I get too with, um, I appreciate that many of us are becoming more aware of like mental health problems and the toxic, uh, toxic relationships and trying to remove ourselves from it. I get that. I think the, my concern is that what often gets lost in that whole discussion is that we're losing sometimes our, our ability, like those muscles that it takes to be willing to provide space for people who have wronged you, to be there for your enemies, to be there for people who are seeking forgiveness from you. There is, um, you know, there are many ways that, that our culture does this whole thing, this whole narrative of like, you know, uh, forget the haters in your life. You got to do you. We've talked about this at Spark many times and in the ways that that is not a Jesus approach to it. In fact, that's as, uh, that's as American of a spirit as some of the more uh, violent imperial warmongering things that we've been talking about. Where uh, in, recently in the news, uh, big news, Harry and Meghan um, were decided to step back from a lot of their royal duties. And I remember that some of the discussion, like in, in my group uh, of friends around that time, was, uh, I don't understand what the problem is. Forget the royal family. They got to do them right? The idea is that the most important thing that they could do in their lives was like their own pursuit of self-fulfillment. That attitude, like I said, sounds very American, not necessarily very Jesus-like. Those of us who are followers of Jesus and uh, who are Asian might be familiar with that, like to think that that attitude is actually the opposite, right? There's, uh, there, you know, there's this, sometimes this cultural experience in, in Asian American households of uh, like, you know, wanting to pursue, like do, do what you want to do for yourself at the cost of everybody else around you is actually extremely selfish and destru- destructive to the family. And what I would want to encourage us to do is to take the approach of, instead of the, to always default or gravitate towards, I just can't even, to consider the possible ways in which actually you can. And I wanted to, to, um, use one story in my own life to highlight um, how I have felt somebody living this out. So very, uh, or not, not recently. So in, um, four years ago, uh, a very close friend of Christine's and mine, um, there's a husband and wife couple. They were 
having a baby. And so they were pregnant with their baby at the same time that Christine was pregnant with our twin daughters. And it was beautiful. We're like, we're there among our best friends. We lived next door to each other. And um, we had beautiful dreams about what our lives were going to look like. Uh, So for our friends, on their baby's due date, the baby died in her womb. And we were the ones who were taking care of their older daughter at the time, so they first told us immediately. It was, it was heartbreaking. And not only that, on top of that, prior to, like, I think a few months earlier than that, we had actually had heard of a couple friends who had gone through something similar where <clears throat> one— friends, one group of friends was, they were, they were having a baby and they had friends who were also having a baby. One family lost their baby and the other one went on to have their baby. And we had, we had a couple examples in our minds at that time of friendships that actually were broken or became estranged because of that. The family that lost their baby, they just couldn't be around who were their very close friends, because every time they saw that baby, it hurt them so much. And I understand. I'm not telling anybody how they should behave in that situation. You feel what you feel. I get that. Because of that, when, um, when our friend's baby passed away, Christine and I, actually had a talk about how it was going to turn out for us, like what, how we thought our relationship would continue. The, the, uh, a couple of weeks after the baby passed away, we went to the memorial for that baby. And, like, and when we came home, um, our, our friends who had lost their baby, they, they came uh, over to our place. And the, the woman in that couple sat next to Christine on the couch. And I was, I was sitting near there too. And unprompted, she said, I want you to know, Christine and Omer, that what happened to my baby is not going to have any impact on how excited I am for your daughters, how much I love them, how much I'm going to support you through that. Nothing changes about me being all in. We did not expect that kind of response at all. That was a beautiful moment of her saying, actually, I can. I would understand if I couldn't, but she made the decision to do it. And for her, that decision squarely came from Jesus. Jesus had cultivated that attitude in her really her whole life. So that when the day came that she was confronted with an injustice, with cruelty like that, she was ready to respond the way Jesus would call us to creatively respond to the people around them. It's not about, again, I don't want you to hear that story and say, this is me telling you how you should behave in that situation. I'm asking you to consider what you can do in any situation. Can you hold space with someone whose experiences are the opposite of yours? Can you be a safe space for someone who has wronged you? Can you be a source of forgiveness and healing and redemption for someone else in a cruel and violent world? If you can you will be practicing the way of Jesus. And I personally have found that nothing inspires the imagination and creates peace the way Jesus does. We're now going to switch over to communion. 
We're continuing the tradition that Jesus himself laid out that embodies the self-sacrifice that, that he laid out for those who he loved and for his enemies. And the way the text goes, it says, for in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Please stand for a benediction if you're able. May you love your enemies. May you pray for those who persecute you. May you bless those who curse you. And may you forgive those who harm you and do you wrong. In his name, for the way of Jesus, for the sake of the world. And may you know that God has loved you. God has prayed for you. God has blessed you. And he has forgiven you for all the wrongs and the violence that you and we have committed. And it's for his name and for his sake. Amen.